everyone and welcome to this, our final instalment in the ProNet webinar series. For those of you who have joined us for the previous sessions, you'll be aware that due to current travel restrictions, we've been unable to hold our usual ProNet national conference. In its place, we've been bringing you one webinar a week for the month of August. During the webinar series, we have looked at why people choose to take up roles in the family business, uh, the outlook for investments, and last week, Justin Langer shared his views on leading people through uncertain times. In tonight's session, we focus on the outlook for our agricultural commodities. Our guest is Robert Herman from Mercado and Ben Ladinsky from our Pro Advice office will be facilitating. Before I hand you over to Ben, just some housekeeping. Uh, please keep your microphone and video off. To ask a question, just move your mouse to the bottom of your screen until the menu bar appears and click on the Q&A button to type in your question. Also, uh, this session is being recorded and all of the sessions from the ProNet webinar series that we are able to make public will be available on our website. When you log out of the webinar, uh, please take the time to complete the short survey and provide us with your feedback. I hope you enjoy the session and over to you, Ben. Thanks, Jane. Um, and welcome to the final session in the Pro Advice ProNet webinar series. My name is Ben, as Jane mentioned. Um, well, it wouldn't be a ProNet event really without a quick look at a few ag commodities. Um, our guest tonight probably doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, Rob Herman, Managing Director of Mercado, who provide advice relating to strategies to manage risk and in, in the volatile ag commodity markets. Rob's got excess of 30 years experience in ag and advising the area of marketing and risk management. Uh, and this is for clients such as agribusiness, corporate and family run farms. Good evening to you, Rob. Hi, Ben. Thanks for the introduction. Well, good. Uh, Rob, I was just wondering if we could have, kick us off with a, a quick snapshot potentially on the big picture issues um, in the market at the moment and some of those fundamental influencing factors when it comes to ag commodities. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, happy to. And, uh, you know, it's, um, we always joke <clears throat> a little bit about agriculture, how there's always plenty to talk about. I think this year, 2020, we've been, um, we've been inundated with almost too much to talk about and too many things happening. Um, so the, the, the first thing I guess to say, and I've been saying this in all of our presentations, is there is no crystal ball. And especially when we've seen these really unusual times, Ben, um, COVID-19 is obviously the elephant in the room. No one knows when, a re when we'll get over it or when the recovery will begin or even when that recovery begins, how fast it will be. But tonight, what we hope to do is, um, is put out some ideas and some facts and figures and some uh, scenarios and, and help people actually, um, you know, perhaps get a bit more of a handle on it and help to make some decisions in the future regarding their particular commodities on their properties. So thanks again. Let's start off though with, um, let's not forget the pig story. And, uh, Someone said, why do, you, why do you put a pig up? Well, number one, because it's always a nice looking photo and uh, some beautiful little animals. Um, but importantly, it is, um, it, it's really impacting strongly on our agricultural markets at the moment. It's a sort of story that's gone away a bit. And if we didn't have COVID-19 around, it would be a huge story still. So, and what it revolves around is the African swine fever, which has been causing a, a protein shortage worldwide. And just to give a little bit, um, you know, Ben, you can go away tonight and say we've had a, uh, um, a who's who of what's happening in the pig industry worldwide. There were about 800 million pigs in the world. Uh, incident, uh, or not incidentally, but coincidentally, over half of those pigs were in China. Like most things, you know, China's big, and it's, uh, but it's certainly big in the pig industry. So 440 million pigs in China up till 2018. By the end of this year, that will drop to somewhere between 200 and 240 million. Now, what that means for us, it's not, not so much about the pigs, it's about the protein demand. Those pigs were supplying about 25 million tonnes of protein per annum to the Chinese population. Um, even if they, you know, do things to uh, try and ameliorate that problem by increasing beef production, chicken imports, beef imports, and so on, they're still going to have around about a 16 million tonne deficit. Now, it's easy to throw these numbers around, um, but if we look at that 16 million tonnes, it's about seven times the total of the Australian beef industry. 
So the Australian beef production is 2.3 million tonnes. There's 16 million tonnes that's missing from 2018 in just the Chinese economy. And remembering that African swine fever not only impacted in China, I mean, it's impacted in the Philippines, Vietnam, a lot of those Asian countries. In fact, it's been around for a long time in Northern Europe, but it's been mainly in the wild pig herd. It's only when it got into those domestic pig herds in China, backyard piggeries where we saw all those pigs being slaughtered that it became an issue for protein. And just incidentally, uh, if we're talking about production, the Australian sheep meat production is not even 1 million tonne. So we're not gonna fill that 16 million tonne void in a hurry, but it's going to continue to impact on us. The other thing that is just worth saying here is that um, there is a really strong correlation between increasing GDP, you can see across the bottom there, GDP in one, uh, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 US dollars. As that increases, consumption of, of meat proteins or consumption of uh, meat increases. And so that's been a phenomenon that we've known for a long time. And the reason it's, in, it's even more important now, and, and some, of these, some of the people watching will have already heard us talk about this, is that we've seen it happen in countries in the past. So countries like Korea and Taiwan, when they've emerged, Japan, uh, their consumption of red meat goes up as they become more wealthy. The big thing though is now that China is the one that's emerging and it's, and it's the first time we've seen a massive population go through that process. So that's where that red meat demand, it has such a strong outlook. Of course, what COVID's done, it's slowed down that economic activity. Uh, so the GDP growth is not going to be as fast, but the trend and the pattern is still there. And of course, that's, you know, in the short term, that's taken a bit of the sting off it. I just want to put up another slide, which some of your um, uh, guests would have already seen that we use, and that's the Australian sheep flock. And, and this is also an important component of what's going to be going on in the future. So this particular chart here on the orange line has got uh, the sheep flock. I mean, it peaked in 1990 at about 170 million. It then went down as people destocked when they got they were out of favour with the wool market. We then had short periods. So those grey areas are where we've, for short periods, we've actually increased the flock. And, but they've only been short periods. And then it's decreased again as droughts have kicked in, etc. Now, what we know is what this green line here indicates is that when the sheep offtake, so that's sheep either live exported or slaughtered, is more than 12% of the flock, the flock will be in decline. So it's only been for short periods since 1990, only been three periods since 1990 where the offtake has been below 12% and the flock has grown. So that's a concern. Just another little bit of a, a, an offtake for tonight, I suppose. The same situation occurs in New Zealand. Uh, they started with a lower flock, obviously. They started with about 70 million head, but they're down to 25 million head. But the same thing has been happening. Their, their offtake has been above 12% for a lot of the periods. And of course, over there, it's not that people are going into cropping or anything like that. It's that the dairy is winning the fight for acres. So that's sort of the story. Um, the fundamentals are, are, are generally very strong. Um, local supply and, uh, and demand are positive. Um, we've got wool where, and we'll talk about this a bit more in the future, in, in the, later in the night. Wool consumer confidence is down. Red meat protein is still in short supply. Prices remain historically high for red meat protein and restocking will continue. So in the East Coast, we've had this break in the drought now and restocking will continue because returns are good and the season is much better. Now, the other factor that I'll throw in here is that um, we're coming in for a big grain harvest. We're coming in for a massive grain harvest on the East Coast. And a lot of people would say, thank God and finally, but that's coming and that's going to have an impact as well, Ben. So that's the, the overall view, if you like, from what we're seeing right now. Thanks, Rob. That's a pretty good summary there. Um, myself being a part-time beef farmer, I'm quite interested in what's going on in the beef um, scene. As you remember, probably this time last year, some fairly horrific conditions out and about. And I was just wondering, what does the changing seasonal conditions mean for beef moving in the future? Well, what, what it means is we're seeing, and we're seeing it in the market right now, we're seeing a cattle boom. And, and I'll show you a, a, a table later on where we compare sheep prices, lamb prices and beef prices, or we have a look at them year on year. 
And for those who are in the beef industry will remember back to this time last year, we had, we're in the, in the throes of the drought on the East Coast. Um, the destocking and female slaughter rate was, was escalated and prices were impacted. Um, but that really turned around in the breaking of the drought. And, and the real reason it turned around, and again, we'll touch on this later, is that we now have restocker activity. So um, prices are really elevated, um, but I guess the concern is that, um, is there a correction still to come? And we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. I think there are concerns in the beef market um, in that space, but we'll try and put some, um, some meat around that. If you look at these charts, they probably also give us a little bit of a, a warning sign. So the, um, the green chart at the top there is the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. And you can see that before the last drought, we were really on a strong upward trend after the previous drought, if you like, where we, we had a, you know, deflated prices. And we also, but we also had high meat prices, high export meat prices. So the market took off very rapidly from 2014 onwards. But then, of course, the drought and the, uh, and the subsequent sell-off of, of cattle and, and big turn-off uh, into meatworks uh, depressed prices. But as soon as that drought broke, you can see it just escalated up. Same thing happened pretty much with the cow indicator. Again, we're at, we're at very strong levels. So restockers are driving the market, uh, Ben. And um, although uh, here's something that we probably need to um, recognise as well. Numbers are down. If you have a look at the, this, and if you just keep in mind this chart, uh, the, the cattle indicator, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, 53% up year on year. Cows up 19% year on year. Um, but slaughter is down and yardings are down. And the other one that's down is the old 90CL. And for those who remember, we talk about 90CLs. They're the, um, the, the hamburger mince, if you like, or the trim. Uh, it's a good indicator of meat demand. So, you know, the, um, Ben, the bottom line is that restockers are driving the market now. Numbers are down year on year. Um, the market's recovered from the drought, but there are some concerns ahead. I think myself and others on the call be quite interested, Rob, to know is, um, are we on too much of a good thing? Is this, is this a bit of a bubble? Are these high prices sustainable? What's the, what's the road ahead look like? Yeah, look, um, well, you're all sitting down, so I can tell you whatever and how you'll be able to take it. Um, I, I think there are some real warning signs there. Um, we, have, we have the most expensive beef in the world in Australia at the moment. Now, if you go back to this time last year, we probably had the cheapest beef in the world. So the seasonal impacts do, the seasonal conditions do impact on our cattle price. And they were impacting this time last year, and they're impacting now that we've got tight supply, We've got strong restocker demand. Um, and, you know, we've also got um, the lowest number of cattle in feedlots that we've had for, um, uh, you know, three or four years. So supply is tight. But at the other end of the scale, and we had a look this week on Mercado at um, uh, the, the price of beef coming out of feedlots, it's never been higher. So that, that chart I've got up there, 90CL versus EYCI, is probably telling us a story. The EYCI is the orange line, you know, it tracked along at a, at a comfortable gap to the meat price. And, I, and you know, while 90 seals aren't the prime cuts, they're a good indicator. And, and trim makes up about 30% 30, 30 of every carcass, Ben. So it's an important thing to, to watch. But what's happened is that the, the price of the, the meat, in, mainly into the US, US is a big driver of 90 seals, really escalated and then it started to pull back. And it pulled back at the beginning of COVID um, and then it sort of tracked along, you know, in a, a meandering sort of a style. But at the same time, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator just went through the roof and has stayed very strong. We can see now that the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator is in a strange position relative to an IDCL. So um, I, don't know, I don't know that we need to be, you know, terribly fearful, Ben, but we need to be aware that, you know, this type of a, a model is not sustainable long time, just as we said it wasn't sustainable when the drought was making, you know, 90 CL prices, uh, you know, processes were making huge money out of their 90 CLs and the cattle price had moved. So that's, that's the indicator that we use to give us a, a lead on what's ahead. Rob, I've got a couple of questions uh, coming in on the Q&A. I hope you don't mind um, dealing with those as they come in. 
Um, just a question regarding, do you think plant-based meat substitutes will affect the market for real meat and what effect would the environmental impact of methane have on market? Yeah. Um, look, I think, I think methane and carbon in general is something that the industry is going to address. I mean, I, I commend MLA and I commend the NFF for, you know, not burying their head in the sand and saying it's all rubbish, but, but, but going forward and saying we, we've got plans to deal with it because I think that will happen. The question about plant-based meat, um, I think it's more an issue emotionally for beef and lamb producers than it is in reality. I mean, we've got, you know, if you, if you just go back to that um, chart I put up about the, the, the pigs in China, you know, we, we are really in a, in a great spot here in Australia. We actually get the highest prices of anywhere for our red meat because we, we're recognised as having a quality product. And that's not, you know, I know everybody says that, but that's the reality because, you know, we have traceability, we have, you know, systems in place, we are able to export it chilled or frozen, um, you know, the traceability and, and, and all that sort of stuff adds to that. And we do get into the premium market. So we don't compete directly with those countries, you know, probably talking about the South American countries and, and India, which is a big exporter. Um, because of we're on a higher quality, but um, so I, I think what that the, the plant-based product will continue to grow. There's no doubt about that. But so is the population, and so is the population's ability to spend money. So the challenge that we have, and and to be honest, I think MLA is really addresses it well, is that we have to know where to target our efforts because our customers, our markets, aren't everybody. What we want to do is look for the discerning um, customer and someone who can pay. And fortunately, the world, the average salary, if you like, in the world has never been higher. So that's to our favour. Excellent, Rob. And one other quick question on the um, Q&A is, uh, in this current market of reasonably high beef prices, what's that mean for processors? Um, are they making money at these levels or is this bad news for them? No, they're, they're, it's bad news. It's really bad news. But then their business is, um, and some people remember we did, a, we were part of a uh, project for the Tasmanian government looking at meat processing in Tasmania. And one of the things you learn when you talk to processors is that their business is really, one of them described it as a cents and pennies business. We make little bits of money on big volumes. And, and so, and what they're trying to do is lose little bits on low volumes when there's no margin in it. And so fortunately, usually when the margin drops out is when the volume drops away, which is what's happening now. Um, that said, it's, it's a real worry to them that we now have a 30-year low cow herd and good seasons on the East Coast. So the appetite to grow the herd is going to mean there's going to be less cattle available to slaughter. And the same with sheep and lamb. We've got uh, a 100-year low flock. And so we're going to have... We've got... I mean, the lamb surplus lamb numbers have grown in the last uh, few years or the prime lamb. But that said, we, we really have to be careful about how low this flock gets because th these industries, and it's the same with the wool industry, to be honest, they, they, they survive on volume and supply. And we need to have an industry that's actually growing to supply these markets. You, Thanks, Rob. That was a quick question. I should try and do a quick answer. <laughs> sure. Um, you mentioned in there uh, the reference to the good season, especially in the East Coast. Um, some of the New South Wales farms are definitely looking down the barrel of a more favourable season. So it, they've probably gone down the path of some cash crops there. So I'm interested to know um, what's this mean for grain? Well, you're 100% right. Um, supply is definitely up. And um, on two fronts. One is that the acres planted, especially, I mean, New South Wales is sort of the bellwether state, Ben, because it has a big sheep flock, it has big crop acres, and any swings uh, are amplified in there. And so we've got supply up because of much bigger planting. It's interesting when you talk to, today I was talking to Western Australians and they, they did a bit of a quick whip around and we've been hearing that the conditions are a little bit, you know, a bit edgy over there or on the edge. Just in the last three weeks, they're saying that the rains that have come now have assured them with at least an average crop and, and maybe above average. So supply definitely up. And what that means though, unfortunately, is that um, prices are down. And you know, that's going to always be reflected. And it's not just that supply is up in Australia, supply is up all around the world. 
So we haven't had a um, we haven't had a bad season anywhere for a little while, apart from Australia. And while we're while we're a fairly significant exporter, we're not one of the big producers. You know, so you know having a bad season here is not the end of the world for world grain prices. So prices are in decline. The other thing that's happened is that local prices now, for the first time for a couple of years, are at export parity. So in the last couple of years, we've had our prices, they've been too expensive for the rest of the world. There's been cheaper grain everywhere else. Now they're at export parity. So that tells us that probably we're finding a flaw in the market where it is now. And for those that have got barley, um, the numbers that we saw today were actually the cheapest barley around at the moment. For, this is for new crop. So we're probably going to see a bit of activity with exporters trying to get back into the game and um, uh, you know, build a bit of an export business after, their, after the drought years. So, yeah, so you can see here on this chart that, you know, Chicago, we've got Chicago in um, Aussie dollars a tonne and US dollars a tonne. The reason we look at Chicago wheat prices is because that's the, the index of the world price. But if you have a look at uh, the ASX wheat price for this January, same story. You know, we've come off, we've come off in, in a similar pattern to what the world price has come off, but we've come off a little bit harder because we started with a good premium for our grains compared to the rest of the world. The, uh, the story's not all bad though. Um, this, this is grain consumption and you can see that grain consumption is growing. Um, and, and by looking at that dark green line down the bottom, you see corn is the big one. Now the reason corn is important in this whole story is that, especially in the US, 30% of corn goes to stock feed, 30% goes to human consumption, and the rest goes to ethanol production. Now, that's playing on the market, obviously, because ethanol production is down or ethanol consumption is down. Therefore, the price of ethanol is down and that demand is dropped. So that's a bit of a problem for, um, for prices. But the, the growth, the grain consumption worldwide is growing. If we focus just on wheat, Ben, um, you can see that this is where it gets interesting for us. So those orange lines are consumption in the last what's that, since 2006. Whoops, I'm pointing to the wrong chart, sorry, 2006. The orange lines are, are, are um, consumption, the green lines are production. And so seven out of the last eight years in the world, we've produced more than we've consumed. So even though consumption is going up, production has been very, very strong. And so that's where that black line comes in. It tells us what's the stocks to use ratio. So we're actually holding about 37 or 38% of next year's requirement is sitting in stocks. So if you're a buyer uh, or a consumer, you know, you're feeling very comfortable about all that. You, you're sitting there quite comfortably saying, well, I don't need to go and push the market because there's plenty out there. Um, oil seeds are just a little bit different. And those people growing uh, canola would have noticed that this year the price is quite strong. And it's because we, the consumption of oil seeds has been growing faster than the production or the, the growth of oil seeds in the world. So that's contributed to... Um, uh, you know, stronger prices. And you can see on that black line there that um, stocks to use ratio is, has been falling over the last three years. So, you know, Ben, a bit, uh, bit of good news, a bit of bad news, but the best news is that um, we're going to have a really big crop this year. Indeed. Uh, next one, a few of the listeners are also quite interested in this one regarding sheep and lamb. Um, a uh, little bit of uh, jitters, I suppose, in the market at the moment with some prices coming back from some fairly um, reasonable highs, I must admit. Um, I was just want, inter I'm interested to know what are the fundamentals and what's causing this change and shift in pricing in that commodity market? Well, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, the bottom line is that we think, and based on what I've been saying so far tonight, it's still a very strong outlook. Um, the, 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 it's not only the Australian flop that is a 100-year low, sheep worldwide are at low numbers, you know, and, and I think I was talking to somebody the other day about a property, about an investments. And if you're going to go into red meat protein and you had the skills and the capacity in the country to run sheep, it just looks like a really good um, product to be in, in the future with limited risk and, um, uh, and, and strong demand. And, and the other thing is, and, and I'll show you something in a minute, but demand is growing in new markets. And, it's, and for Australian uh, mutton and lamb, the markets are very diverse. So that's a good thing. Our risk is spread over a lot of markets and, and they're growing. Um, the new markets are, uh, you know, people discovering lamb. And, 
you know, for a long time in a lot of countries, lamb was seen as, be, as, a, as a, a weird taste. Um, as we get more, I guess, globalized, you know, people try different things and we're, we're the same, you know, we're, we're eating all sorts of stuff. And, and so because it's such a small commodity traded worldwide and we're such a, a small part of the red meat protein, we don't need a lot of new customers to actually generate demand. And what that's meant is sheep's had a really good story, sheep meat. Um, and, and this chart, I, I, I love this, um, this chart. I mean, it's a classic for charters. But what it shows us is that each year in the winter, we were having higher highs. And, um, and, and each year in the spring, we were having higher lows. So the market was just on this staircase, you know, almost. What's happened um, uh, just recently, though, is that we've had... Um, the, the, the tip-off, if you like, that's coming on the right-hand side of that came a little bit earlier than it should have, and it's been a little bit steeper than what it should have, but that's COVID. So in, in contrast to beef, our view is that sheep and lamb has had its correction as a result of COVID. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's come now because we're now coming into the spring flush of lambs as well. I should say, on the one hand, it's unfortunate. On the other hand, it's probably fortunate in that we haven't had to clear a lot of lambs. Now, one of the other factors in all this, Ben, is that over the period that um, that price has been going up, China has suddenly discovered that they want to buy um, lamb. And, you know, since 2011, lamb exports into China have just escalated from quite a modest situation to being, you know, one of our equal largest markets. So it's a story of, um, it's a really good story. If we look just a little bit more depth at the... Um, at the exports this year, uh, you can see on that chart there, this year we fell below the five-year average in May. Um, I think it was more about the fact that we sold more lambs early and, and the lambs just weren't there. We're, we're tracking away at sort of the average. Last year was a really good year in terms of supply. Um, if you look at um, uh, export lambs to export mutton to China, um, we can see that, that last year when we were in the middle of the drought and we were destocking, um, China was the one that was actually stepped up and took all that mutton. This year, the exports of mutton to China have fallen away, but it's not because they don't want it. It's simply because we don't have that much mutton to slaughter anymore. And I just put up this, this is a little snippet I found um, in one of the uh, reports we read, but it was saying that the, uh, the, the celebration of mutton hot pot was delayed due to restaurant closure. However, with the Outlets staying to reopen, they're one of the few venues which have been crowded with wait times up to eight hours as people queue to get in. Now, that tells me a couple of things. And, it, and look, let's be honest, it's a snippet. It's, it's a selected bit of information. But it tells me two things. One is that mutton is an important product. And um, I can remember talking to a New Zealand farmer, I think it was last year or the year before, and he was bemoaning the fact that he said, I got $165 for my lambs and then they come and bought my old cow ewes for $155. He said, don't they realise that the ewes, are, the lambs are much better? And the reality is that they were different markets. And, and a hot pot market, what it needs is uh, a bit like you and I do when we're cooking. Ben, we just need something that'll hold its texture, add a bit of flavour. And at the end of the day, you can cook it and do what you like with it. It's still got that protein and, and that look about it. The other thing it tells me is that, and, and this is an important thing for all of our commodities, our understanding and our reading is that China is coming back to normality much quicker. Now, I'll probably go out in a bit of a limb here, Ben, but, or, or interrupt our flow here a little bit, but in the past, we've sort of bemoaned the fact that we are so reliant on China. And I'm not sure that that's fair to, to, to go crook about that because they are such a big market. You know, they're, they're one third of the world's market. So we should be involved there. But if we look back to the global financial crisis, Australia got through that because of the demand for uh, our commodities, our iron ore and our coal. Um, we may be able to piggyback on the back of China's recovery for our agricultural commodities. So um, I know there'll be a lot of mixed thoughts about, about China. I just think we're going to look back this time next year and, and, and then we might say, uh, it's not a bad, uh, wasn't a bad market to be involved in. There's a question that's just coming on the Q&A, which is probably relevant with the conversation, Rob, which is, uh, if the world bounces back to getting out to restaurants, especially before could heavy export lambs get a premium compared to what is happening now with trade lambs? Yeah, uh, the answer is yes. 
Um, and, and we could probably, um, it's probably a good lead into this next, uh, uh, next slide. Um, if we, um, uh, I'll just quickly cover this slide because it's coming up, Ben, but this, this one here just goes to show the diversity of the lamb export markets we have. So the, you know, the US was, is a big market. I keep pointing to the wrong screen here. One screen pointing to the other. Um, it's still a solid market and for a certain lamb. Asia is the one that's really grown. Uh, the Middle East has stayed strong and then you've got others in Europe. So the diversity is really good. But the point, to the point of the question, um, this is what happens to um, when we get um, uh, restaurants closed down. So product starts moving from high value to low value markets. So the high value markets are clearly the restaurant markets. The low value markets are the home cooking and, uh, and the takeaways. And, and you can see there that the, um, the, the rack of lamb, the chilled rack, has, the price has come off dramatically. The frozen leg has started to lift off the bottom. And, and that just reflects the changes in cuts and, and, and values and, and where the market is, is requiring product and where it is struggling. So the restaurants are struggling. Now, the question was when we, um, you know, when this does recover, what happens? And I think there's enough evidence to say that um, there is a real appetite for people who have been shut up. And uh, in Victoria, we can, uh, we can tell you a fair bit about that if you've got time to listen, um, to get out. And, and so I think there will be a surge. Now, there will be problems because some restaurants won't reopen. We will have lost some. But if we remember again that we're talking about a product that's exported to the world, we're talking about a small part of the um, red meat protein um, market, uh, then we could well see that, uh, that the lamb market does start to really um, be sought after for those valued products. That said, we are now coming into the spring flush of lambs. So there's the other factors are there is, hang on, how, are we gonna be able to keep slaughtering them? There's, there's problems in meatworks. Um, uh, ACL today had another case of COVID. Uh, they haven't closed down, but you know, things are touchy. And remembering the Victoria slaughters 45% or thereabouts of the, um, of the East Coast lamb kill. So there's a few ifs and buts, but if you can step through all those um, things that might and mightn't happen and look for the bigger trend, Ben, I think, um, I think there's cases that we'll see, uh, I think we'll see a strong bounce back. And it won't just be for lamb and, and whatever. I mean, I think it'd be for grain as well. I'm, I did make a bit of a statement the other day. I think the one to watch for the early indicator, the canary in the, in the mine, if you like, will be the oil price because that's run by a few, um, you know, people in a few countries who, who control supply and everything. They, they didn't wind supply back quickly enough. So the price collapsed. They've now wound it back. Um, they won't be able to wind it up as quickly, I think, as what demand will if we start traveling again. And that's where we'll get an indication of what happens to commodity prices. I think we'll see, not that we're advisors or experts on oil, but I think we'll see oil take off when that'll be the early indicator that the economy is coming back. Um, we've had some of the headwinds in the sheep meat markets due to some of the meatwork closures and the interruption of those logistic supply chains. Um, does a good season ahead of us trump those particular issues or um, what's that mean? Well, a good season certainly helps. Um, if you have a look, we, we've done a bit of a, well, we've got last year's um, Australian lamb slaughter and then lamb slaughter up to May, the figures only come out to May. And then we've got projections. You can see there on the, on the pale orange, of what we need to slaughter just to get rid of the lambs that we've we've got. Now, if we if it was if we went back to this time last year, we would be a lot more fearful because we know that New South Wales was getting very quickly to the point where they just had to get rid of all their lambs, regardless. They just they were going to start going backwards, and that would have flooded the market, or it did flood the market last year. But it would have been a catastrophe this year with the the fall in demand the meatworks issues, uh, all those things combining with a, an increased supply would have been a disaster. So this year we've had, uh, we've had better, we, we certainly had better conditions. We've got to remember that the ewes mated weren't mated in these conditions. They were mated in dry, coming out of drought. So we think that probably the lamb numbers are going to be around about the same as last year or slightly less, um, but they will have more weight on them and they will have more capacity to hold lambs on property um, and put more weight on as a farmer 
than, than any other year, especially, I mean, in New South Wales, it's just extraordinary to see some of the, the conditions of some of the paddocks in terms of feed. So that, what that means is that in last year, we might've had what could be called a disorderly um, uh, exodus of lambs off the farms where farmers just said, I've just got to get rid of a hundred lambs, 200 lambs, a thousand lambs. Don't worry about it. They just got to go. Whereas this year, um, they will be more steadily turned off. And if there is pressure on the market because of A, there's a meat work closed down, or if there's a, um, you know, there's a bit too much supply, then farmers will be able to, uh, to just pull back. So, um, so the good season is, is the positive. The, the negative is, is, I guess, is on the, um, you know, still to be, uh, still to be seen if, if those negatives come through. So to summarise there, it's the threat meat outlook. Um, supply's pretty tight. Um, demand's a little bit weaker and some of those works and logistics meat processing closures may potentially throw a bit of a spanner in the work, but yeah, um, yeah not exactly. too bad. Exactly. And um, if we, uh, you know, if we look at it, I think overall, the, the, the thing is that we've had the correction that a market needed in these climates and that I contrasted back to beef. Um, so yeah, so overall fairly positive. If we look at the, uh, and remember we put this table up for uh, beef before Ben, uh, the Eastern States trade lamb indicator is 21% down on this time last year. It's down 6% on, on the week. Uh, national mutton indicator is down. Um, slaughter rates are actually holding pretty well. So they're 8% up on uh, year on year. Um, but um, sheep slaughter is well there, down 41%, and uh, and yardings are all down. So the sheep price turn price downturns arrived early. Um, we think that mutton prices will stay strong in terms of a summary here, Ben. Um, supply is going to be tight, and so this just gives you a bit of a snapshot of where the um, eastern states um, uh, trade lamb indicator has gone below the five-year average. It's interesting to see the five-year average because I made a, I was talking to some farmers the other day and they were saying about how this lamb market's come back. And I said, oh, how many times have you sold lambs above $7? And not many had, but when you look at it, we actually have had some pretty good years to get a five-year average in that range there. So we've come below the five-year average. Um, we're thinking, I mean, we know that that spring uh, supply always has a bit of a, a, a hollow in it. Um, but if we get to December, January, and we're coming back up in those ranges again, we wouldn't be surprised. All good. Um, we've done the sheep meat job. That's a good summary there. I suppose I don't have religion or politics, Rob, but is the um, correction in supply similar to Paul Keating's recession we had to have? Or <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it is, and um, that might be what we're saying about beef come three or four months. Sure. And I don't want to be sort of harping back onto that, but I just think in our planning, our farm marketing planning, we need to think about it. And to give you an example, we were talking to a, um, farmers down in Bansdale, and one of the things to do right now, where you're getting paid $5 a kilogram for little light cattle, is maybe find those little cattle that you're going to be struggling with at the end of the season and just tip them out now. I mean, it's not something that's easily done when you've got feed, but, you know, you might be getting the same price for them now as what you'll get for them, you know, at the end of the year and you haven't had to carry them. Isn't there that saying, Rob, if, um, if you can't afford to buy them, you can't afford to keep them? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I've also have had people say to me that when ewes got to $200, I was going to sell every ewe. Nobody ever did. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, good snapshot there in the sheep meat. Um, the other component of sheep is the wool bit. Um, uh, not a good story in 2020 there, but I uh, just wondering if you could um, delve into that for me. Well, I have to. Um, that's the only reason I'm going to do it because uh, it's it's a it's really uh, I hesitate to say the words say sad, but it but it is wool is just in that terrible space where it is um, it's not something that people have to buy, so people still have to eat, and even though they might be more selective and mightn't want to spend as much or whatever. They still have to eat, but with wool, we're finding that um, you know, being a um, you know a discretionary spend, it's it's really it's it's felt the full brunt. And you can see there that the um, the Eastern Young indicator, uh, sorry, Eastern Market indicator, both in Aussie dollar terms and US dollar terms, is at the low point for that chart. 
Um, we, it's worth noting though that since 2018 when the market peaked, we, um, it, it was coming off and that was a pretty orderly um, correction. You'll see in this period here where we led up to the end of last year, the market was sort of very stable. And for those people selling wool, remember that, you know, if, if the market eased 20 or 30 cents, farmers would pass in 20, 30%, next week the market would bubble up. So we knew that the, the, the thing was in fairly good equilibrium. The problem was that the next phase came from um, the COVID and uh, it really hit hard. The first, we knew right at the beginning of when it first got announced in, in China that um, the mills were affected because they, they, you know, everybody was just shut down. There was nobody in the mills, nothing. But they did come back very quickly in the mills. What we didn't add up until later was that in fact, the mills have to actually have a customer at the other end. And those customers just aren't in the shops. And the shops, if the shops haven't got customers, they're nervous and they're not um, ordering. And if they're not ordering, the processes aren't getting orders. So they're nervous and not taking on any more than they have to and just, just ticking over day to day. And it cascades all the way back to the auctions and back to the farmers. So unfortunately, the, uh, the table tells the story with 37% back on this time last year in Aussie dollar terms. Um, both 37% uh, uh, in Aussie dollar terms and 33% in US dollar terms. Bale sold is slightly up, um, but you know, that's not um, telling us much at all. Uh, the pass-in rate is dramatically up, obviously. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a minute. We were asked whether this is a really bad correction, and it is. It's about the fourth worst one we've ever seen uh, in terms of weekly change. So uh, that was the week after uh, when sales resumed after the winter recess. So, you know, so that was bad. And of course, you can see as number five there was March of this year, which had a pretty serious fall as well. The other thing that's happening, Ben, is that wool sales are, um, are in decline. And we went from uh, in 2016 to 2018, we sold nearly 40,000 bales a week, which if you think back to then, that was basically just wool that was produced was just getting sold. So the production is around about 40,000 bales a week. Uh, in 2018-19, that dropped away a bit. Then last year, it dropped away again to 26,500, especially the second half of last year or the first six months of this calendar year, uh, it really dropped away. Um, and, and currently, we're running at about 28,000 bales. Now, this is where it gets, um, you know, if we've got, we've got 40,000 bales a week to sell and we're not selling 40,000 bales a week, then that's a problem. <laughs> mm. So yes, so if sales are below production, what's this mean for some grass stocks? Well, raw, raw fibre stocks are rising in general. But just to put a little bit of perspective on it to start with, um, you can see on this, this little chart up here, that red line, uh, we won't talk about the green line, that's the ratio of wool to cotton price, so that's been going okay. But the red line is what percentage wool is of the cotton supply. So we're 0.5% of world cotton supply. So just keep that in mind. We're, we're, not, we're not a serious player in the apparel fibre market at, at a broad range. So, um, but we're also, um, this is the uh, greasy wool stocks um, and production. So that's the orange line. So back in the 90s, we had this big carryover of um, supply sitting in stockpiles. Um, um, and this is the um, this is the sales. So this is what we're selling. You can see in the last ten years, we've sort of basically sold what we've produced, which is fine. Which is around about that forty thousand bales a week, a couple million bales a year. It's just this last little bit where we, um, you know, our sales have dropped away. Our stocks haven't risen dramatically yet, but it's an early early warning. So just going back to, you know, wool, we produce, there's about a million tonnes of wool produced in the world a year. Just to keep it all in perspective, cotton stocks. So this isn't cotton production. This is amount of cotton in stocks is equal to 3 million tonnes. And this year, cotton stocks will grow by another million tonnes. So we, we're, we're quite capable of selling 2 million bales a year, or we were pre-COVID. Um, but the, the, the challenge is if we, if we start to sit back at 25,000 bales a week, then we very quickly get up to 2.4 million bales. And you can see on that little graphic on the right there, um, we haven't sold 
2.4 million or over 2 million bales for a long time. And that was before we had the COVID problem. So talking to a group of wool brokers in WA today, and, and, and the challenge is this, if, if growers go out and sell all their wool, if we're putting 40,000 bales a week on the market, the market will collapse. If we only sell 25,000 bales of wool, then sometime down the track, we've got to sell 2.4 or 2.5 or 2.6 million bales of wool. So I don't know, it's, um, it's, it's going to be a real challenge. Let me, um, Rob, there's a few couple of questions on the wool. Oh, there always is, there always is, Ben. I'm trying to, I'm trying to skip past them. <laughs> uh, first one, he's been waiting for a little while here. Regarding fine wool, how closely do you think the price is pegged to a global recovery? Where do you see the wool price heading? So um, are you getting to that in, later in your presentation? Uh, no, I'm not getting, to, uh, um, not getting to that in particular. But what I can say is something to watch for fine wool producers is that the premium for fine wool now has really, it's, it's snuck up. Nobody's talking about it, but the premium for 16 microns over 19, for instance, have a look at it. It is at, it is at very strong levels. And what that tells us is that when any recovery comes in the wool market, uh, because we've now got the drought behind us, we haven't got that flood of fine wool. And, we've, and remember, we've got a good season happening now. So even if it stopped raining today, Ben, wool that's shorn in six months would still be the, effect, have the effects of this season. So it wouldn't be hunger fine. So our fine wool supply is going to continue to contract. And that's going to mean that any movement upwards in the wool market it will be amplified in the fine wool market, just like it was before any increase in supply in fine wool actually crunched those premiums. Now we're seeing those premiums go out. The look, we always talk about fine wool in Australia. The, the fact of the matter is for our, our merino clip in the world situation, it's all fine. It's actually, this, we're talking about super fine wool where we're talking about wool finer than the, than the average, which the average is about 18.9 now in Australia for merino wool. And um, it's highly sought after. And, and especially when we're at, we've got sheep numbers at 100 year lows. Remembering one other um, incidental factor, uh, I, I seem to have all these numbers running around my head, but more than 50% of Victorian sheep or less than 50% of Victorian sheep will be mated to merinos now. And, and that's a trend all around. So any improvement in demand will have a, um, you know, have a, have a, like a cat's tail effect on the price and, and, and especially fine wool. Uh, one other quick question on wool while we're in that as well. You mentioned the oil price before being an indicator for some of the commodities. The question here is, will the oil price be an indicator for the wool recovery? If so, what would the lag time be before we see a higher wool price? Yeah, look, I, I don't think it will be. I, I Sorry, I think, I think it, oil will be an early indicator of raw commodity demand. But I think the connection between oil price and wool prices is very tenuous now. And if you look back to, um, I've actually got, uh, I, might, I might talk about that in a minute. That's okay, all right. Great. Um, here's one for, uh, for the pundits. So someone might have seen this, but this is a, a wool price going back to 1784 and a cotton price going back to 1784. And you can see that we've had, you know, it's been really quite a flat um, period, you know, in th and this is in real terms. This is in real prices, uh, so deflated. Um, it's been quite flat, and I guess that's a combination of increasing population and uh, and whatever. There have been some spikes in there, and and people can start to think about what they might what they think might have caused those, because we'll come back to that in a minute. But if we add into that, um, here's what's happened since 1960. So the uh, PSF is your um, your polyester price. You can see the polyester was invented in about 1960, and the price quickly collapsed. Well, it didn't collapse, it got cheap. And it started off at the same price as wool and now it got cheap. And that's the function of, uh, of a synthetic fibre. So a synthetic fibre just needs to cover its uh, setup costs. It needs to pay for its machinery. And then you basically turn the factory on and, and away it goes. And so they can continue to reduce their costs and therefore they sell it cheaper to try and increase market share. And of course the market share grew and grew and grew. What's happening right now is that synthetic fibres, Ben, haven't got hit as hard as natural fibres in the price. And the reason is that they can turn the supply off. In fact, they can just slow things down. They can stop it if they like. Whereas with wool and cotton, it's still going to keep coming. Cotton's the next crop's going to come, even if you didn't plant another one. 
we know with wool, it keeps coming. If we then have a look at that same chart, just in a bit shorter time frame, it becomes more obvious that wool has done very, very well since 2000. So its price has actually been on an upward scale, whereas other fiber prices have been um, on a downward scale. And cotton has been caught up in the fact that it's just seen as that bulk commodity. It, it just competes directly for price and, um, and, and market share with synthetics. So that's a problem. I'd rather I'm interested in a few of the people on the call will be interested if you could explain there's some fairly significant spikes there in both the uh, cotton and wool markets. Um, is this a history lesson here or do we yeah. um, listen <laughs> more at school or what, what are we not seeing there that I should know? Uh, well, you can see that uh, roughly in about um, uh, around the 1800s was a great time to be in wool. Um, and, and incidentally, for those history buffs, will remember that's when the Australian wool the Australian merino industry and Australian wool industry started. So great time to start it. And uh, some of our great, great grandfathers, they didn't know how well off they were. They were really rolling in it. Um, but, and, and cotton was going well up until that point too, but it's come back and then it had a spike. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what they were, Ben, yet, because you're going to tell me, give me one. But the, the, let's start with 1950. I'm sure most people would either have parents or remember themselves what, what happened, what was the cause of that wool spike. Uh, probably a war-related thing, I reckon. Korean War. Yeah. And, and there's a, for those history buffs, there's a little bit of, it's a funny story. Um, what happened was that the US government, uh, they didn't announce it, but they sort of let it be known that they're probably going to acquire all the wool in the world to put on their soldiers in, um, in Korea for the winter. They never did it. But of course, you know, nothing like a good rumour to, to spike up a... Um, a market. So what about the cotton price? Because that looks complete, something really weird went on there and it went on for a very short period of time. I reckon I've watched enough dodgy cowboy movies to know something went on, went on back in the late 1800s. Yeah, so um, it was the, US, the US Civil War. And if you remember, all the cotton was down in the South and, uh, and all the uh, um, demand, was, you know, the South just got cut off. And, uh, and so cotton prices went through the roof. Now, this is the one for the, uh, the uh, bonus prize. Ben, is anyone going to type in and try and get an answer or nothing coming? Hang there for a while. Um, let's see what the, the chat line's got any, oh, there's a two, two on the chat line there. Yeah. No, nothing there yet, sorry. You might have to um, put us out of our misery, I think. No, it was, it was the, a combination of the Crimean War and the Napoleonic Wars or whatever. And, and at the same time, it was the Industrial Revolution. So the, in England, you know, the, suddenly the ability to process yarns with machinery, you know, really ramped up demand. And it, and it improved efficiency. And obviously, you know, they can make things and sell them. And so the demand was strong. But uh, in reading some of the history books, you, you go back to some of the old wool checks that people were producing when, you know, out of Tasmania and Western Victoria when they first um, came here. Uh, you can see why they were driving around in Rolls Royces and, and going to London for six months of the year because they were just rolling it. So let's finish on a little bit. Um, yeah, stocks are growing <laughs> evenly across the micron range. So, um, we, we, we had a look at, if you look back there in July 2018, there, there was virtually no wool and there shouldn't have been any wool because the market had been strong and encouraged stocks to be taken down, but they've grown very quickly. And that's what we talked about before. One of the questions we had was, you know, what wools are in that stocks? And the best we can figure out by looking at AWEX data, so you look at, um, at uh, AWTA data, testing data, and you look at AWEX data of sales, it looks like it's a fairly even spread across what comes into the clip. So obviously the majority of the wool these days is 18 to 20 microns. So that's got the majority of the wool in it, but there's a, there's a representation of all types of wool in there. Excellent. Um, so wool's a discretionary spend item. Um, what's the future? Um, is this a consumer based confidence thing? Uh, is this a, a economy turnaround? What's going to drive um, increasing demand in this space? Well, the, the consumer confidence is, is, the, is the big one and um, you can call it all sorts of different things, but um, that's the reality. People have to be able to, A, the shop's got to be open for a start, but um, people got to be able to have the confidence to go and spend their money at a time when everything's uncertain on clothes. And, and we know that that's not what happens. 
I just want to put up this, um, Ben, this OECD composite indicator. Now you can put up a lot of different indicators, but this one takes account of business confidence and consumer confidence. And you can see black in the global financial crisis, um, the market took a big dip uh, or the indicator did and it recovered. This dip has been even deeper, but I know this is only a, um, uh, a leading indicator and it's not, you know, it's not reality yet. But based on the data that they've been accumulating that gave them the, the previous work, it's showing that this is going to be a quick recovery. And let's see, I mean, we could be right, we could be wrong. But if that's the case, then, you know, I'm saying look out for um, uh, demand. It, it, the sooner it happens for the wool industry, the better, because it'll mean we don't build, you know, huge stocks. And, and the demand probably, this, this reaction, Ben, probably doesn't have to actually be in a massive price surge. It just has to be in the ability for the market to absorb that extra wool so that we're not building those stocks, which will then set the wool industry up for another pretty stellar period going forward, I think. Rob, a couple of questions. One, which is back to the lamb price, which we can get returned to in another, another one. So if I can quickly go to the lamb one, because we're getting close to time. Um, can you give some predictions on store prices versus trade lambs and export lamb? Well, yeah, look, I think store prices are going to be very, very strong. And, and because I think supply is going to be very tight. So we've, we've got, you know, usually at this time of the year, we've got lambs coming out, it's starting to come out of New South Wales that need to be finished somewhere. There's less of those. The other factor that's going to play into it is we've now got barley at sort of $180 a tonne on farm. So anybody who's got some crops in, is gonna try and store that barley, then they're gonna have a look and say, well, how can I actually add value? And, and lambs will be part of that. That said, we are, we are still optimistic that perhaps the lamb market has had an overcorrection right now. And, and so we've still got to get through spring flush, but it, it mightn't be as bad. We've seen times where the spring flush has turned into a, um, a pretty strong market when you know, the demand is there for, for product and the, and the process has put it through. One other thing we didn't mention is that China, the Chinese um, consumer is very partial to frozen meat um, because it, it, that indicates that it's safe. You know, back in those, you know, we, we think fresh and, and chilled is safe. Over there, they've got this mindset that frozen is safe. So what it means is when we do have a flush of product, whether it's mutton, lamb or beef, we can freeze it, our processes can freeze it and they can deliver it later, which is really helpful to get us through those spring flushes. Rob, one final question here on the Q&A before we start to wrap up. Um, long question, I think it might deserve a long answer, unfortunately. Um, Considering China's ethical behaviour has become increasingly contradictive to not only Australia's values, but other Western democracies, how might our livestock industries adapt and innovate to the current year of great power competition if this was to evolve into conflict? Is this, uh, what are the next largest markets and what are some alternative production opportunities? Well, I, I'm, I'm an, optimistic in, in this, an optimist in this area, Ben, because if we look at, I mean, our big exposure is wool, but then the Chinese wool processing industry hasn't got any alternatives. It has to have Australian wool. So I'm saying they're probably gonna turn a blind eye to wool. In terms of beef, we already saw where they, um, they banned four abattoirs in Queensland. In, I think that was in February. In March, we exported a record amount of beef to China. So I'm thinking, you know, the, the political statements and the reality of markets are two different things. And, and the other factor is with our red meats is that we have done a very good job about being diversified. And again, contrast it with wool. Our biggest market is still our domestic market. So, you know, we're, we're not as exposed as what we sometimes think we are. I and, and I guess a, a similar story with iron ore. I mean, when you look at it, that's the one they should be targeting if they really want to hurt us. But they have to have the iron ore, a bit like the wool. They should be hitting this agriculture, hitting wool, but they have to have the wool. So. I'm not, I think we're going to see these the pick, pick ones off, like barley, like wine. There'll be something else. I mean, dairy might be one. But the bigger commodities, our bigger export commodities, we're, we're not as at risk, I don't think. Trying to Thanks, be That's really good. I think it's a good answer to that question. It was a fairly complex one, so you put that together pretty well. Um, I think that's close to wrapping up the commodity bit. I was just wondering, uh, just at the finished bit here, uh, we talked previously, Rob, about the Cassenda project near Uganda. 
Um, I know tonight's presentation fees are going to go to this project. Just wondering if you wanted to um, put a few things together on that. Yeah, look, we, we were very fortunate to be given the opportunity to meet up with some people in Uganda a few years ago. Um, we then had the opportunity to, um, we met, uh, we met Wilson. We then put a, uh, a water system into the village. We put tanks up, we built pig sheds and we put pigs in and we had chooks. And, um, the whole thing was, was supported by people from some of the people were on this tonight, I think. So it was, it was really good. I'm interested to know why Wilson, why pigs, why chooks, Rob? It's, uh... Well, the main reason having someone like Wilson over there, um, and, he, and he's just a wonderful man. You know, sometimes you meet people, you just know that you're always going to be mates with them. I speak to him probably weekly now. But he means that we've got that reliable in-village support and that he protects what we do. So it means that when we go away, the whole thing doesn't fall apart. It continues on. And that's his... Um, that's his uh, um, fascination and, and uh, objective. Pigs and chooks, though, are fantastic. <laughs> they're they're self-replacing. They mean that we've got a sustainable small business. The village has protein. Um, the, uh, that they, they, have, they can sell product, and that means uh, they can buy medicine, the water purifier, education costs, things that they didn't have. None, they had nothing, none of that. I remember visiting, there's a guy in the photo before called Julius, and the second time I went back there, Wilson said, we've got to go and see Julius. And Julius is lying on his bed. And seriously, he looked like he was going to die. And he had um, cholera. Uh, oh, he had something. I can't remember. But what, what he was missing out on was a 10-shilling medicine. He didn't have money for 10-shilling medicine. And so anyway, he got that that day. The next day I saw him and he's sitting up and, and he's back at work. So those sort of basics that we take for granted, they don't have. I'm keen to know, Rob, with the investment made there what are some of the changes that have come to pass well <laughs> the kids uh, the kids um, have got water you can see that line up there when we first got there see that drum of water that's the, that was the school that they started there was and you can see it's like a hay shed there's no roof but they had that one drum for lunchtime um, this is a photo of the tap we put in so the village is more resilient they start to think to the future um, we've got kids that never washed under a tap um, I'll just, here they are at school. So the money from the pigs and the chooks funded that teacher. And, and in Uganda, you can't go to, the government doesn't pay for schooling, so you, parents have got to pay something. So what we said was that with Wilson, we would put up a teacher and the, the kids who weren't going to school could come for free. And... We didn't know it, but there was 140 kids come out of the bush from within about a 10k radius that weren't going to school. So that was really uh, a big thing. Um, when uh, I'll just show you that this is what Wilson sent me then. He, he sent me a note on the bottom there. I make a quote to him. When I speak to you, I'm humbled that people from the other side of the world care enough to help us. So he said, I tell the villagers we've got to work hard to honour your support. And uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. So... Special thanks. Um, sorry, Ben, I cut you off then, but we'll go to the finish. Special thanks to, uh, it's been farmers and Mercado clients who made the donations. A company called Total Eden gave me a solar pump, which I put in my carry-on baggage. I know it weighs 23 kilos, and uh, I carried that on the carry-on baggage to um, Uganda. And the Ballarat West Rotary means that people who make any donations to this, um, they, uh, they can get a tax invoice for that. So it's... Uh, we work it out that for one year, it costs us $50 to run a pig and $10 to run a chook. And I'll just finish by showing you this tap. So this tap, this was the first time these kids had ever put their hands under the water. Now, the water comes from a river called the Rigor. Um, there's a, we put a pump down there. And the way that Wilson explained to the village is how this water comes there is that he said, the Rigor has come to the village. So this is the first time these kids. <laughs> so those kids, Ben, had never seen um, water come out of a tap, had never washed in anything but a bucket or a tub. And the water was being carried 1.2 kilometres from the river up to the village. So that was the, the impact that we made. So... Um, 
thanks very much for letting me talk about that. I, uh, <laughs> um, it's Rob, I think we've, we've dealt with most of the questions during the presentation there. That's been really good. Um, and yes, that with the, the Uganda project, I think a fairly small investment is going to make a fairly significant impact on someone's life. So um, good thing to consider, that's for sure. And thanks to Pro Advice for letting me, um, for, for supporting it. I appreciate it. Not a problem at all, Rob. Thank you um, for taking the time on your Wednesday evening to present to us tonight. We're very grateful for that, Rob, and also we're grateful for the rest of the guest speakers that we've had during the um, ProNet webinar series, um, taking the time out to, um, to chat with us. Please, uh, as you log out, take the time to complete the short survey. Uh, and as I mentioned at the start, the recording will be on our website later this week. Uh, that concludes our ProNet webinar series. And we'd like to send a big thank you to you, all of the participants. Uh, we've been overwhelmed with the response to our webinar series with over 330 people taking part in the last four weeks. Um, so, so thank you for participating. And hopefully next year we can see you all in person again at the ProNet National Conference. Stay well and good evening. Thank you.